Well, it's good to have everybody here today again. Today's topic is doing cover crop research right. What I've learned after 22 years. Uh, you can see from the background slide there, this is actually from my farm where uh, we have done quite a bit of cover crop research. And it is more difficult than you might think, but with a few pointers here that I hope to give to you today, it's not that hard. I would also like to uh, mention as as we as we go through this topic here that there is a there is a lot of uh, nuances and how to make this really work well and to have good data. So a little bit of I guess I would call it historical reference. And I got into this research with cover crops back in the mid 90s, and it really started with Dr. Ray Weil of the University of Maryland. And the upper left-hand picture there is the first research plots I did with cover crops in 1995. And ironically, I think now, the question I was asking was, do cover crops pay? That question continues to be the number one question that people ask about cover crops. So. That's what I started out with. And there you can see four replications, 15 feet wide, 150 feet long. And we use them, those plots that you see there that do not have any cover on were kept out of cover crops for 12 years running. And you could soon start see the differences there on the right of how the soil looked. And it didn't take me long. Matter of fact, it wasn't, it was only till 1999, four years later, we had a drought year, and every single one of the plots that had had cover crops the previous four years had a much better yield from either from eight to 28 bushels per acre more. That is when I was convinced that cover crops pay, and since then I've never turned back. I'm just researching them to try to understand them better and so forth. I was also involved in a mid-90s with the Chesapeake Bay project looking at phosphorus, and uh, that has come a long way since then, but that is how I got started. And then some of you are probably familiar with the tillage radish. This is actually the very first plots on my farm in 2001, and uh, this later came what is to be what was to be known as the tillage radish, and again, Working with Dr. Ray, Ray Weil of the University of Maryland, uh, he kind of introduced me to it. I then created a uh, created uh, the seed and started marketing them, and uh, they literally went worldwide. But um, so that kind of really propelled me into some strategic research and all kinds of aspects of cover cropping. So credit to Dr. Weil for getting me launched into cover crop research. Now I wanna say something here on the outset that you may have heard before, but it's really become clear to me. I have done thousands of research. Now that picture there shows you some nitrogen research on various cover crop plots. Uh, but the statement on top, you can state the facts while telling a lie, is something that you kind of need to keep in mind when you hear research that comes out of any research. 
because there is a lot of wiggle room uh, for interpretation of research. One of the things that you want to know is who's paying for the research. That sometimes can give you a clue into why the results are the way they are. So I'm just kind of put it out there. Honest research is out there, but you got to be aware sometimes. If you hear something that's too good to be true, it probably is. And was it farmer applicable? Was it does it does it was it really done in standards that are like real world farmer uh, the way it was done? Because Sometimes research can come out of a greenhouse or come out of well, some very highly controlled environment, and it really doesn't apply to farmer-run research. So uh, moving on, let's, let's talk about what you might hear. And this is some of the things that I use in my, I guess you'd say standard, my research standard. The goal I have in the research I do is to provide information or data that gives a producer a basis for trying a new practice that will provide a benefit. So that's kind of my definition. I'm really geared to what I call farmer-friendly research, and I look for that. For instance, what is the probability of a difference? A lot of times we don't state it in those terms, but when I give out numbers, data, I want to be sure that it's something that could possibly be replicated on other people's fields. And then, as I alluded to, is it farmer managed? And this doesn't necessarily mean a farmer has to manage it. I'm just saying that in farm conditions, sometimes they're different in what we might say as a professional researcher or, or someone like that. There are some awesome researchers out there that actually pretty much function like farmers. Um, and sometimes you'll see research, and this can be applied to any agriculture research, that just wasn't done in a way that mimics what a farmer could, uh, could experience. So without going into that any deeper, just want to kind of lay that out there as somewhat of a groundwork uh, when we're talking about other research. Okay, we've all heard these quotes. Here's some common quotes I hear, and a lot of times this comes from farmers, and um, they might be comparing something, and they say, "Well, it looked better," and and that's okay. That's helpful. That's that's interesting to note. Does it really provide any data? Here's a classic. It was 16 bushel higher than the county average. Well, that's fraught for misrepresentation right there. Uh, who knows uh, if that farmer's, you know, has better soils than the county average or not? I don't know. Uh, but when you hear a comment like that, take it with a grain of salt. That's interesting. Or I did a side-by-side -side test. Again, interesting, helpful, but doesn't really have data to back it up. Or finally, the yield monitor said a seven bushel increase. Well. That may be true. Again, helpful, but not as, not from a statistical sense that that's good data. So these are all things that are helpful, but just be cautious that you don't take them as uh, as an exact science. And just again, kind of common sense here. 
So some of the standards that I look for is whenever we're trying to test something, we want to have a control. In other words, it, it could be, it depends what you're trying to do. It could be with a cover crop or without a cover crop. The control in this case would probably be without a cover crop. Uh, so that's just a simple one. You could have uh, a nitrogen study or any kind of a fertility study. A control may be your standard practice with some alternative practices you're trying, like less nitrogen or more nitrogen in the context of cover crops. I don't know. A control also could be a zero application, depending on what you're trying to do. Another thing is at least three replications, but preferably four. Three is good enough for some scientific data, but I've done this enough to know that invariably sometimes one of those replications, for whatever reason, can be ruined. For instance, driving through the field applying fertilizer and you accidentally driver error take out 40 feet of one row. May not be too much if you have a long replication, but it affects the data. So you might toss that one out um, and just use only three of the four. Now, when I say things like that, what I don't like to do is take out the worst one of the four just to make your numbers look better. Not good. Don't want to do that. The only reason is if there's a valid reason that the numbers just are not fair to the test. And that's the rule I use. Is it fair to the test? Got to be objective. That's paramount. If you want to get respected for what you do, got to be objective to the thing that you're testing. Also, if we're talking cover crops here. If it has to do with yield or anything, field length is absolutely preferred. It's a lot easier. I say minimum 500 feet. Um, I mean, just to put a definition to that, anything less than that, it's amazing the different variability you will see in a given soil. Uh, previous history and stuff, things that you may not be aware of. Another thing, when we're setting up research, I like to say find the wall. And what I mean by that is test something that's beyond what you think will show a difference. Sometimes that can be the control, depending on what you're trying to test. Or like nitrogen, you might want to use a higher rate than expected just to see where the curve would go on that. I'll give you a quick example, uh, and I'm going to show you this a little later on. I'm going to run through some research that I've done. I wanted to test short season corn varieties, and when I initially did that, I chose a variety that was way down to 83 days. I thought that variety would be beyond what, what, uh, what would actually even be acceptable in my area. What well, turns out that variety actually was pretty good. But then upon further review, the, the variety probably should have been placed at more like 88 or 89 days rather than 83 because of its comparative maturity with some of the other ones. But the fact was I tried it expecting that to be a wall and it actually wasn't. So then after that, I actually got shorter season than that 
I did find the wall then when I get down into the, the high 70-day corn. So I'm going to look at that a little bit later. But that's just an example of what I'm talking about there. Now, the basics, the practicality. Field layout. First of all, you have to know how many treatments you're making, um, how many times you're going to replicate it. Do you actually have room in a field? And you need to choose a field that will give you a fair test. And again, there can be a lot of variables in it, but if there's any historical things, you want to stay out of it. Uh, just So you just got to try that. Sometimes when you're in a new region, you just don't know, and there's nothing visible. Well, you go for it, and then you see what the results are, and if there's something you see later on, then you adjust to that. But always create a border. Always create a border around it, all four sides of the, any test you're doing. Uh, I like to then measure out the corners, and then where each rep goes, I put a flag in. So if I'm planting something, I like to put the flag in the middle of the plot. Now, I use GPS, uh, but still, it's nothing more reassuring to line the tractor up, and it's right smack dab in the middle of the plot. That's where I like to put the flags for the reps. Personal preference, uh, I've worked with um, like Penn State University. They like to put the flags on the edges of the plots. So different uh, strokes for different folks, I guess. But may, but uh, once you have the field lined up, and then if you're planting something, make sure the planter is set. Plant either around the border first to get a feel for uh, the planter set correctly and all the different things you're doing uh, so that when you make that first replication, it's ready to go. And a big one here is have someone to help. I'm not saying this can't be done by yourself, but boy, there's a lot to think about, more than you would ever imagine if you've never done it before. Uh, but having someone uh, to help, a second set of eyes, uh, is very, very helpful. If you're using GPS and you're trying to mark it out, make sure you have the, the, the accurate one, like the RTK or RTX, that gets down to, uh, I'm going to say, you know, one inch or two accuracy. If you're doing uh, wider plots, this isn't as important, but GPS can work really nice in setting this up. So if it's something you have, definitely take advantage of it. Then get good data. When you're weighing um, the, the, the whatever you're doing, weighing biomass, weighing yield, use a weigh wagon like for yield. If you have one or a set of scales, could have uh, pad scales. Again, on, on smaller things like biomass, you may uh, get the appropriate scales. So uh, having the right equipment to measure is important. I would just make a comment here on yield monitors. I say they're okay for non-scientific type field-like trials, which probably most of you would be doing. Uh, but just take them for what they're worth. Yield monitors can be finicky. Uh, they're, they're, they're generally accurate. They're impressively accurate. But even so, if you're really looking for for like hard data, uh, I would suggest using a way wagon. It, it gives, it, it just kind of backs you up. Another thing when you're taking out the, the when you're harvesting or any time during the growing season, I strongly encourage you walk the plots. Look for anything that could impact your study. Uh, for instance, one time we had a groundhog that came in and in the soybean field. 
Well, guess what? That rep now had about a 30-foot diameter hole in it. Uh, not a lot of difference, but, you know, what do you do about that? Well, you, you can, if you have an extra rep to spare, you can, you can kind of just throw that one out if it's evenly in that one repli replication. You can kind of try to measure uh, and, and delete that from the square footage of that plot. My goal has always been to be fair to the test. And that's the application you need to apply here. Be fair to the test with any, uh, any variations that you happen to see in a trial. Now I want to show you some uh, actual data that comes out of some of our tests. And, and, and for, this, for this talk today, I'm not going to be discussing the results. I just want to show you things I'm looking for in data. And I'm going to show you a couple of them here. And I'll just briefly tell you this is an effect of nitrogen fertilizer coming after various types of cover crops on corn yield. And when you're displaying data, a lot of times we like to see it in these columns like this, and and that's really nice. And um, I kind of put the blue dotted line through there, all for, for the control. That gives a nice way to get perspective of the difference that your treatment made, um, and so forth. But uh, just looking at that chart there, and I don't have time to explain anything. Uh, but see the blue lines in the bottom? That was the, the control, essentially, with zero pounds of nitrogen. And you can see it kind of tailed off there uh, at the end. If I go to another way of looking at this chart, this is the same thing you just saw, but the data points are shown more in a line that's curved. And it allows us to see things a little bit differently. So... Uh, when you're when you're charting out responses to a given research thing, don't just always use columns. Sometimes it's more visible and more uh, clearer what you're trying to do. So in this case here, that blue line there was the control that when we added more nitrogen, it didn't help us at all. It actually, according to the data here, kind of hurt us a little bit. So it's just another way to show the data that you have out there. Um, consistency is key to solid data. In other words, you want the replications to look fairly similar. And there's all kinds of margin of errors and everything that you can list on your, uh, when your final reports and so forth. But this is just a very simple data set here of zero nitrogen in the top right, 75 pounds of nitrogen in the top excuse me, top left, 75 on the top right, and then the bottom center is 150. I love this data set. You know why? Because it looks to me like it's very consistent. You can see the middle one is was a cover crop of wheat, and that tended to be lower in each treatment. Not only is it consistent in this treatment, I've seen this multiple times whenever I've included wheat as a cover crop. In uh, this is kind of a late later summer situation, like after after wheat, if you will, you have plenty of time to plant it. And then again, I'm not showing you all the covers, but all the other covers did better. It was consistent over each of these plots. That is good data. I feel good about that. I feel like I can talk about that. There's something there. There's a message there. 
Now here's another example that is, is more complex, but if you look from the left to the right, you can see trends uh, that they're similar. I like this. When I see this, I really like it. That, that I can feel like I got some good data. Again, we're not going to go through all that. Uh, now, what does it look when it's unacceptable? Well, here is a replication that I did once with 75 pounds of nitrogen. And this was nothing of the data I already showed you. This is another field. The reason I didn't show it to you because you've never, no one's ever seen this. The reason you haven't seen it, in this test here, we had a 69 bushel difference between the three plots, between the highest yielding and the lowest yielding. 69 bushel difference in corn. I cannot feel good about that data. That's within the replications there. I could run the average and I could tell everybody this is the average, but don't feel good about it. This is not good data. So I don't know <clears throat> why it was this way, but we couldn't figure it out. Honestly, we couldn't figure it out. Maybe it just was a variant in the field that we didn't see, did not use this data, did not publish it anywhere, not consistent enough. And I'm, I'm, I'm really making a point here. You got to have somewhat consistent data to be able to be replicable uh, when you're doing it. And this is just another slide here just to show you what I'm talking about. This is what I like to see, some consistency here that actually shows uh, what we're doing. Now, <clears throat> let's switch gears a little bit. Early on, I talked about side-by-side -side testing. And I kind of said that's not, that's not necessarily a good way to do research. Well, in some instances, it is a good way. I took this picture when I was in France. Uh, this is literally same soil type. This is about 40 feet apart. There's just a road separates these two soils. Obviously, the soil on the left is a little darker than the soil on the right. Soil on the left, 15 years of no-till with cover crops. Soil on the right, conventional. So here is a side-by-side -side that we can feel good about. It's long term, same soil type, you can see a difference. Um, so just want to clarify that side-by-sides do indeed have value. Now here's another side-by-side -side that's a little different. It happens to be the organic matter in my farm over the last 30 years. So this is a combination of many years of testing. And, uh, and, and you can see there has been a change. Uh, now you might come to me and say, you, if you're really a scientist or something, you say, well, how many years did you test that? And what was the trend? Well, I'll just tell you, the trend is almost level going up, about a tenth of a percent each year. A little bit, just slightly more of that, and it's steady. So that's kind of a story behind the data. Uh, I'll just mention, too, if any of you have any questions, you want to type in the, the chat box there. I'll try to be able to answer them then. And um, as we... Uh, get near the end here. If there's any questions you're thinking about talking about or about this at the end, you can start thinking about that. So, also sometimes there's a time and a place for small observational test plots. You kind of see in the foreground there's some crimson clover there. If you really look close, there's some hairy vetch. Uh, these are tiny little plots that are five feet by ten feet, and what we were looking at is just some varieties um, within there, and they're just uh, put out there just to see, just to get a look at them, 
see how they perform. Um, so definitely there, I don't like to take much data off that other than you can take flowering dates, uh, winter survivability to a certain extent, get a lot of good information here. So small plots are indeed viable as well. Now a little, a few different types of research that are done. This is called the randomized block design. And this is very complex. This is when you're testing quite a few things and you want to get a lot of uh, information out of it. Just want to show you this. This is some work we did on uh, with Dr. Ray Weil on some deep nitrogen uh, where we followed the nitrogen seven feet deep. And uh, this is very sophisticated here. It takes a lot of preparation to set up. And once you get the data out of this, though, you there's there's a lot to know to do uh, things like this. But again, some of you are there and, and you can do it. Uh, you might have heard uh, a randomized stripped trial. Here's a good example here. The, these uh, plots here uh, was actually a planting green project we had done. The top are like two of the same. There's two there. You see them two flags on the on the uh, more on the left side. Then there's actually two plots. Then there's one plot, and then there's one plot below. And this is randomized. In other words, you can you, you either draw something out of a hat or or uh, sometimes I'll just take a bundle of flags that I have, the flags are different colors, and I won't look at the flags, and I'll just pull out a flag. And um, I don't want to put three of them together in case I would hit that, but I'll do two. It's supposed to be more statistically accurate. Um, I think... Uh, you know, just to, that it's randomized. You've you've shown no favoritism to anything you might have known. Uh, I don't tend to do this a whole lot. What I tend to do is a straight up strip trial. And you can see in this picture here, it's very easy to see. There's a soybean maturity. And there's actually, there's a waterway going down through the middle. So there's two plots you're looking at here. Very easy to see. It's, I believe, four different treatments, and they just go down one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Um, so that's pretty much what I do. Now, one thing to note here, and you'll learn this, if you're doing anything with maturity, is that you plant a short season crop on the outside in the end rows. So you can get that harvested off first. That opens up the field then to get ready to harvest the first ones that are ready. So that's just a little tip there for doing that. Now, I want to take you through some research that I did quite a bit of and help you understand where my mindset's at in this and how to do it. So this is an example of shorter season hybrids. I've alluded to it, but I just want to show you an example. All started back in 2011 where I put up two replications, only two, wasn't really enough, but um, just for observation, Two replications of a 103-day hybrid and a 111-day hybrid. Turned out we got a 31 bushel difference. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. The year must have worked out. Wasn't expecting that. That was good. Let's try it again. Now I'm ready to take this up a double. So what I did was uh, was plant a, uh, a, a strip trial here, as you see it. And then we took off the corn when it was ready. And then we measured the yields, and then as you'll see here, we planted cover crops. So part of what we're doing here is testing different varieties of corn that's going to be good for short season corn. And then what is the benefit we get in year two by getting that corn off 
and getting a cover crop planted sooner. Is there a year two benefit from that? So right as we take off the corn hybrid, it's ready. We plant a cover crop immediately. Then the following year, we're going to plant one hybrid across the plot, keep the plots in place, and then take the yields off to see if our cover crop gave us any yield. So uh, again, my standard here is around when the corn's around 20%, that's when we roll. I know some of you roll earlier, some of you are later. Our standard, when it's around 20, that's when we're taking off in this particular instance. That's what we're doing. So the first year we really did this in 2012, you can see about a dozen varieties down there in the bottom. And sure enough, my short seasons did really good that year too. And uh, medium, mid-seasons, a little off compared to that. In this case, our control was a long season. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Kind of two years in a row here, our short stuff did pretty good. 2013, we did it again. Again, our short and mid-seasons did really good. I'm thinking, wow, I'm really on to something. Uh, why do I plant a long season corn? Well, third year, long season comes around and blows everything away. So, uh, and then also you can see on that 2014, we found the wall. If you look over there, you can see the, uh, there's five numbers underneath 80 days. Just absolutely, there's, there's no way to consider any of them. But my short season still held long, but my long seasons did good on the third year. So when we put all three of those years together, my long season then, because of the outstanding performance in the third year, actually averaged a little bit higher. My short season still did pretty good. So, so now I just want to pause a little bit and say, that's why you do it for three years, at least, because every year is different. We all know that. And when you hear people come out with data, ask them one year, two years, three years, you know, how long has it been? Because when there's there's variability from year to year, three years, I think, is we're getting to the point we're starting to get some solid data. Now, you may look at this and you say, oh, I guess it really pays then to plant long season hybrids after all, statistically. Well, not so fast. What are the other benefits we got? Here's a picture here in mid-November. The short season came off, was planted early in cover crops. You can see them there, long season, barely any cover crops grew too late in the year. Then we went in and we measured the biomass the next spring. The corn that came off early was higher, almost double than the corn that came off later. So, well, that's cool, but that doesn't say anything about yield until we took the yields. The following year, and this was a collection of 28 different plots that I did, um, we actually had a seven bushel increase where we got our corn planted, our cover crops planted earlier the fall before. So if you can follow through here, if you want to just look at statistics of my three years, what I did was essentially getting some corn off earlier I got a higher yield next year because I could get my cover crop planted sooner. Now, I could talk a lot more about this. I just want to show you data today, how to understand this. And I feel this is a farmer approach, a farmer perspective, and what a farmer wants to know on, on doing uh, cover crop research. So that can be considered money in the bank. One more thing, I'll just, as I wrap up here, and again, get your questions ready, about ready to open the phone lines. The effect 
of this short season work that I did. And I continue to use this example, but just look right there on my group two beans and group three beans. Not every group two bean is, is good or bad, uh, but you need to find out those genetics there. If you're, if you're actually gonna do this, you're gonna have to sift through the genetics to see where they may fall. And um, so here's just another uh, set of data from short season beans. Again, where's the wall? I had some pretty good yields here in some of these group two beans. I went to some group one, I found the wall. Far as I'm concerned, I don't need to test those anymore, the one fives and the one sevens on my farm. Now this may look different wherever your farm is, but these are some things that aren't hard to do uh, to figure out what would work on your farm. And the whole context of this point was, can you get some cover crops planted earlier? It's a strategy. And my, my takeaway, is yes, I have done enough research in my farm that I can plant a, a I'm going to say a significant percentage, whatever that means to you. That may be 5%, it may be 30% of a shorter season cash crop in order to get cover crops planted sooner. So that takes you through some research I did that was applicable. Wrapping it up, start small if you're doing research. Increase slowly as you feel comfortable. Harder than it looks usually. Um, but uh, as you learn to do it effectively, uh, you'll get it'll get better. Always have a control. Have at least three replications, four is preferred. And try to do field length if you can. Um, so I, um, if any of you guys have any questions on this, uh, just un unmute your mic or phone and uh, be glad to have any of you uh, come on here and ask any questions. Anyone have any questions? Hey, Steve. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I wonder if you could speak to one thing that I wonder if this is an issue when people are setting up field trials, but I don't know for sure, is if they are tempted to test for more than one thing at one time. That's a great yeah. question, Jennifer, uh, because you, you can get the, the, the data can get noisy, as they say. Uh, it's tempting. It's so tempting. It's like, while I'm doing this, I want to check this. And again, I say that if, if you know what you're doing and you have big enough plots, you can make subplots. But it's better if you can try to keep it to, to what your main objective is. So without going in, unless I hear an example, it's not yes or no uh, on that, but the, the less uh variables that you're testing the better because sometimes then if you start testing too many things you don't know what the cause uh and the effect actually is um does, does that kind of get at what you were uh what you were asking it does okay yeah anyone else have any uh other comments or anything uh or questions on on this topic before we go into our roundtable? I'm just going to put up here that uh, next week uh, we're going to talk about uh, nutrient management cover crops. How much fertilizer can I reduce? And it's it's always a question that that people like to ask, and something that I've again I will show you some actual research from this, and maybe even some of the slides I just showed you. 
and explain them a little bit better. Um, but anyway, does anyone have any other questions for, from today's topic on cover crop research? I, I have another one. Okay. <laughs> um, if you, um, it, it's something, you know, for uh, details as far as setting it up so that is there, how do you pay attention to, you know, your planner width versus your mm -hmm. yield monitor, you know, your um, yes. combine, you know, and, and making sure that those things line up yep. with your, your trial? That's a great question because uh, per, ideally, your replication is wider than your measurement. Just to just to take away any uh, contamination of data, we'll say. Now, uh, just my, for myself, I'm a small scale farmer. I have a six row corn planter, and I have a four row corn head. I take make all my reps six rows wide. I take my data from the middle four rows. Uh, and that's really good if you can do that. Not everybody can do that. Not everyone has room to do that. And sometimes, depending what you're doing, if it is like, like just to say it's fertility and it's with the planter and there's really no overlap as far as when you apply fertility or whatever, you can get away with pretty much edge-to-edge -edge treatments. Uh, you're going to have to kind of use your best judgment on what you're trying to check. If there could be any, uh, I'll just say, interference with an adjoining plot. So I think that's the test you have to think in your mind. Is there possible for interference here from the adjoining plots? And especially if, you, if you're kind of forced to use the, the, the width of the plot for whatever reason. But all these factors kind of come to mind when you set up a plot. So ideally, you try to take out the middles or a representative sample of whatever that uh, plot is. There are some, I have seen some, uh, you know, really huge 100-acre fields where they divide up and uh, they, they just have very huge plots. And sometimes they'll take off like a whole section and just weigh all the corn that comes off there. Or sometimes they'll just get right down through the middle and trying to get it representative. Now, preferably, you would take off as much as you could of each plot to get better data. So that's going to come down to what you're exactly testing. Ideally, you try to avoid the outer edges of, of your replications. So, makes sense. 